Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's return to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It is our Lord's final week on earth. He has spent his days in Jerusalem teaching in the temple and his evenings fellowshipping with his inner circle, preparing them for a time when he would soon depart. So let's read our text, at least the first half of it this morning, Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. And then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to him, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The scripture says it was the feast of unleavened bread. There, there were and are three religious pilgrimage festivals on the Jewish calendar. There was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booze. And this is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it goes all the way back historically, uh, deep, deep into the Old Testament. You remember that God had set aside one man, a guy by the name of Abram, a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And through him, he had promised to bless all the nations of the world. And we believe that promise was fulfilled in the person and mission of Jesus Christ. And Abraham was a man of faith and his son was Isaac and Isaac's son was Jacob and Jacob's sons, we call the patriarchs. They are the fathers of the nations and the tribes of Israel. And one of those sons was Joseph. And Joseph was sold into slavery, of course, by his wicked brothers. And even there, the Lord's hand was upon him and he eventually rose in prominence and power to second in command only to Pharaoh and the great empire of Egypt. And God's sovereignty was all over that because he was going to preserve the nation and indeed the lineage of the Messiah through Joseph. And so God sent a famine and it caused these brothers to go down to Egypt and seek grain. And there they came in contact with their brother Joseph, though they didn't know it was Joseph. And God said that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He was gonna use this for his own glory. And so eventually the entire family moves down to a place called Goshen and there the Lord prospered them and multiplied them to the point where the Egyptians began to fear that they would be more numerous than they. And so a new Pharaoh came upon the throne and he put them under hard labor. For a period of 430 years, they were in 
bondage and affliction and slavery. And they cried out to God for deliverance. And God heard their prayers and he sent them a deliverer, a man by the name of Moses. And Moses looked Pharaoh in the eye and said, let my people go. Pharaoh was stiff-necked and hard of heart. And so the Lord sent a series of plagues, one after the other. And the final and 10th plague was death. He, he instructed his people to sacrifice a, a lamb that was spotless and without blemish and put the blood upon the doorpost and lintel of the house. And wherever the blood was applied, death would pass over that house. And, and we read about that in the Old Testament book of Exodus. So let's turn there quickly, if you will. Exodus chapter 12 we find not only the story of the Passover, but the institution of this feast of unleavened bread. Let's read the first 13 verses of Exodus 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is Israel to kill at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will go through with the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then he goes on in the rest of that chapter to instruct them that perpetually, in generations to come, they were to remember this time of the Lord's deliverance by this feast of unleavened bread. Well, the feast of unleavened bread by the time of Jesus was a week long celebration and Passover was the 24 hour period at the beginning of that feast where the lamb had to be killed and prepared and eaten together. And the Passover had certain elements. You, you heard some of those a moment ago over the years they've added six or seven elements to the Passover feast. But originally there were three primary. There, there was the unleavened bread, of course. Unleavened because they didn't have time for it to rise. They were in a hurry. Remember they ate with their loins girded and their sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand. They were ready to move out quickly. They had to leave Egypt in a hurry. But there's also a bigger meaning. Yeast in the Bible, which is the agent that causes bread to rise, is almost always associated with sin. You remember that Jesus told his disciples to avoid the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, which he said is the personification of pride and sin. Of course, Jesus is the sinless one and he is the bread of life. And therefore we see this bread without yeast and therefore a Christ without sin. Another element of the Passover were, were the bitter herbs. Uh, they would take this uh, concoction of bitter herbs and dip their bread in it. 
This represented the bitterness of slavery. And certainly that slavery was bitter and hard for that 430 year period, but it does not compare with the enslavement of sin that all humanity is in, born into the world, an enemy of God. And then that element of, of the roasted lamb, that sacrifice that was made representative of their salvation. And we know in retrospect, really a type and a sign of the once for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus who was to come. Now, this is what the inner circle of disciples were expecting when they arrived that evening in the upper room, but they got so much more, of course, because the Lord's time had come. He was ready to be poured out and broken. He had fulfilled all that the Father had given him perfectly. He was without blemish, without sin, ready to be the sacrifice. And so let's read the rest of our text this morning, verses 14 through 23 in Luke 22. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after they had eaten saying, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the son of man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Well, we saw the elements of the Passover, the lamb and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. And the Lord institutes this new thing, this new supper. And what are its elements? Well, there are two in number. There's the bread, which of course represents the body of Christ, which is in just a few hours to be broken for them. Jesus said of himself, as I mentioned earlier, he is the bread of life. We are nourished and sustained by Christ as believers, aren't we? And just as our bodies require spiritual nutrition, uh, our bodies require physical nutrition, our souls require spiritual nutrition. He is the word of God that sustains and fills us up and satisfies our souls. But then the other element, of course, is the cup, the, the fruit of the vine. Grapes are crushed and the juice is poured out. And scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We Baptists understand the Lord's Supper to be primarily symbolic in nature. It causes us to remember the past, the present and the future. The, the past when we were hopeless and helpless in our own sin, dead in trespasses, the scripture says. It causes us to remember the present now that we have been forgiven and peace has been made between us and God and we have this wonderful communion and fellowship with the Lord and with one another. It also causes our minds to go to the future to that day when with every tribe and tongue and people group on planet earth, we will gather at that marriage supper of the lamb. But when I'm speaking of the essential elements of the supper, which is the title of the message today, I'm not speaking of any of those things. I'm not speaking primarily about bitter herbs or matzo bread. I'm not speaking of wine. I'm not speaking of those things. I'm speaking about essential condition of a Christian's heart, his soul, 
when he approaches the Lord's Supper. And the first essential element that we see in our text today is thankfulness. Look at verse 17. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Now, depending on what faith tradition you grew up in, you call the Lord's Supper different things. I grew up in a Baptist tradition, and so it's the Lord's Supper. And some of you grew up calling it communion. And some of you grew up calling it the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is derived from a word, eucharizo, which simply means thanksgiving. And so an essential element of the Lord's table is thankfulness. Jesus prayed twice in these two short verses, a prayer of thanksgiving. So, so what was Jesus thanking God for? After all, the cross awaited him in just a few hours. Doesn't seem like a moment to give thanks. Well, we have to look at verse 14 and 15. It says, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I think there's something very important to note in this entire text, and that is the sovereignty of God. None of these things happen outside of his will. In fact, they happen exactly according to his will. Did you hear a moment ago when we were reading from Exodus chapter 12, there was a reset in the entire nation. God reset the calendar and says, from this will be the first month of the year, and this is how you're going to date time moving forward as a civilization. And all of these things were pointing, of course, to the coming Savior. And I think the thing that Jesus is most thankful for is that the hour had come. The wait was over. Redemption was near. And that's why I said, I have earnestly desired to eat this supper with you. This is the moment that all of creation had been groaning for, and it had finally arrived. And he was so happy that those he loved, those he was about to die for, were with him to see it because he knew in just a few hours, God was about to be glorified. And to truly understand what Jesus was giving thanks for, I think we must remind ourselves of Isaiah chapter 53. Just listen to verses 10 through 12 as I read it. The prophet Isaiah writing hundreds of years before Jesus was born said this about the Messiah. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. Jesus was thanking God that his eternal plan of redemption that we call today substitutionary atonement was about to take place. That through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, countless millions would be redeemed for the glory of God. And the time had come. What a great lesson this is. For every believer, thankfulness is to be the rule in every situation. In all things give thanks, the scripture says. And the reason that we can give thanks, even in the midst of one of the most difficult years most of us have ever faced, is that we know what's on the other side. Ultimate redemption, ultimate glory through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus was not looking forward to the pain and suffering. But we know that because after these things, they went out into the garden where he prayed and he sweat drops of blood in his grief. But he pauses before these things to give thanks because he knows it's all within God's plan and everything's working out according to his sovereignty. And so I ask you, dear friends, what are you thankful for today? Every time we take of the Lord's Supper, it ought to remind us to be thankful. I'm thankful for a lot of things. I'm thankful for all of you and the relationship that we've built together these 20 years. I, I'm thankful for the Lord holding our church family together in 2020. I'm thankful for your faithfulness. The books were closed this week, and did you know that you all gave more to the offerings in 2020 than you did in 2019? And the Lord has been so gracious to allow us to do that. I'm, I'm thankful for some hard lessons learned, aren't you? I'm thankful that I don't believe our church will ever be the same. I think it'll be stronger in years ahead. I, I'm thankful that when we take of the supper, it reminds us of the Lord's goodness and his salvation and his manifold blessings. And an essential element of the supper is thankfulness. Uh, the second essential element of the supper is fellowship. Look at verse 17 again. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. D divide it up among you, some translations say. Now, every Christian has this in common with every other Christian, no matter what cultural context you may live in. We have something in common with other Christians across the globe than we do with our closest kinfolk who don't know the Lord. We share in this relationship with Jesus and we promote that fellowship every time we come together. Acts chapter two, verse 52, speaking of the first century church said the disciples devoted themselves to fellowship. That is they made it a priority just as they did with prayer and study of the word because they viewed themselves, I believe, as forever bound together through their common confession of faith in Jesus, in this covenant relationship that he ratified with his blood. And so what are the implications of Christian fellowship being bound together in this covenant? Well, several, I think. Number one is we understand this is a unique relationship. There are certain relationships that are to be reserved and no one else allowed. Marriage, for example, right? When we say our vows, what we're doing is ratifying a covenant, an agreement with God as our witness that we're going to maintain faithfulness sexually in every other way in this marriage, that no one else is a part of it. And I hear people sometimes saying that we ought to design the church service and the church program to be appealing to lost people. Well, friends, that does not compute. The church, by definition, is made up of saved people. Now, we pray and we seek and we beseech the Lord that he would save more people and bring them into the fellowship. But the Bible says that lost people can't even understand what's going on here among us. This is a relationship that is unique to those who have bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so it's a unique relationship. Secondly, it's a relationship of encouragement and support. The Bible say, says we are to bear one another's burdens. It's good to know these days that we're not alone, isn't it? That we have one another. Scripture says two are better than one. We need one another, folks. Uh, 
When Jesus sent out his disciples, he did so in pairs. There's that mutual encouragement and support that comes from belonging to a local church family. Because we go out, thirdly, for the purpose of partnership in a common mission, which we call the Great Commission. And Jesus said to his disciples shortly before he ascended into heaven, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey whatsoever commandments I've given you. We are in partnership in that mission. And finally, perhaps most importantly, in the context of fellowship, there is mutual accountability. We owe certain things to one another. We owe help to one another in time of need. We owe tough love sometimes when it's called for to one another. We owe patience with one another, forbearance. We owe ultimately forgiveness to one another because we have been forgiven. And when we take of the Lord's Supper as we did last Sunday, we are reminded of this unique covenant accountability relationship that we have with one another that is different and unlike any other relationship we may have. And there's a third element that is essential to a right taking of the Lord's Supper. It's found in verse 18, and that is anticipation. Jesus said, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Until the kingdom of God comes. Now, we spent many weeks last year on the subject of eschatology, the study of last things. We study verse by verse through Daniel. We study verse by verse for the first three chapters of Revelation. We spent six weeks in Luke chapter 21, the Olivet Discourse, probably the clearest teaching in the Bible of eschatology. One of the great eschatological passages in the Bible and the Lord's Supper and the teaching on it here in chapter 22 comes right on the heels of that Olivet Discourse. And we said throughout this study of eschatology that we now live between the already and the not yet, right? There's a sense in which Christ's kingdom has come. He rules and reigns in the hearts of believers and the church. But there's also a sense when that fullest completion of his reign is not yet. He has not yet put the government of the world upon his shoulders. Every knee has not yet bowed to his lordship, though one day it will. And so we know in the already, he's been born of a virgin, fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. He's lived a perfect sinless life. He's died on the cross as our substitute. He has risen again. He has ascended to glory and he lives within believers, but his second advent has not come. We live now in this age of grace where the gospel is going forth to the nations. We know, according to Scripture, where it's leading. And Jesus knew where it was leading. That one day, as Paul said, every knee will bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will eventually make all things new. And when we take of the supper together, we're reminded of those truths, aren't we? That as bad as it may be, and it's likely to get worse, that on the other side of suffering, there is glory. There is heaven. And when Jesus says, I'll not drink of this vine until I drink it new with you, 
in the kingdom of God when it comes. I don't think that's a metaphor. I don't think it's hyperbole. I think he's literally saying, just as historically the Passover came, and just out presently the new covenant is being ratified, that one day in history future, the kingdoms of the earth will pass away and there'll be a great celebration of the saints. And when that day comes, all things will be made new. He was anticipating a day in the future just as he had anticipated taking this supper with them. And so every time we get together, yes, it, it ought to be a sober occasion where we look back at how sinful we, er, we were and, and what a great miracle it took for us to be forgiven. And yes, we celebrate in the presence that we're not alone in the world, that we have this fellowship and this covenant relationship with one another in the context of the local church. But no understanding of the Lord's Supper would be complete without an element of anticipation. That this is just dress rehearsal and practice, really, for what's coming in the future the eternal fellowship of the saints as we are with the Lord forever. But I said this is a sober occasion. And one of the things that makes it so sober is the fourth and final essential element of the supper, and that is a warning. Oftentimes Jesus gave his disciples warnings, not because he wanted to be a killjoy or ruin the moment, but because he was a realist. He understood that we have an enemy, don't we? He understood the dangers, toils and dangers, the dangers, toils and snares that we all must face on our path to heaven. And so even in this moment of great joy and celebration, there's this sober warning. And it begins in your English translations with that conjunction we always talk about here, but. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. And for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And we see in this verse that great tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? Nothing is happening, including Judas's betrayal, that was not under the superintendence of God's sovereignty. But... That doesn't let Judas off the hook. He's not without blame. He says, for indeed, verse 22, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Now, Tony picked up here last week and said uh, that the conversation quickly turned from which one of them was going to betray Jesus to which one of them was the greatest. So it tells me none of them thought they were the one. But it tells me something else. None of them thought Judas was the one either. Usually in movies and theatrical representations of this night, Judas is clearly evil, right? He's dressed differently. He has a different posture. He's viewed as sinister when he walks in the room that evil music starts playing. That didn't happen that night. Judas was trusted. We know because they elected him the treasurer. He carried the purse, the scripture said. 
but he was unconverted. He was unmoved. And here's the warning. Right in the middle of thankfulness, fellowship, and anticipation of heaven, there's a stark warning. And here's the warning, friends. It is not enough to regularly be in the room with Christians. It's not enough to give intellectual assent and even lip service to the gospel. It's not enough to sing when we all get to heaven and know every word by heart. The heart must be changed. And Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter three, you must be born again. Judas was never born again. His heart was never changed. There was one among the 12 who was a pretender. And yet no one suspected him. He said all the right things. He bowed at the proper times. He said amen at the proper times. He did a great job of pretending. Here's the warning to us. When we take of the supper, yes, it's a time to think to the past and thank the Lord for his forgiveness and his substitutionary atonement. Yes, it's a time to reflect on the relationship we have with Christ in the present through his spirit and the relationship that we have uniquely in covenant with other believers. And yes, it's a time to anticipate the glory of heaven, but it's also time to examine our own heart. Do you know the Bible says that we are regularly to examine ourselves to see that we are in the way. And the way was an ancient way of talking about Christianity, to make sure we're truly born again. When we take of the supper, it's time to examine our own hearts and our own relationship with Christ. What do we supremely value is a great diagnostic question to ask. Is it Christ or is it something else? What Judas supremely valued became very clear, money. Scripture says here in Luke chapter two, for some money, he betrayed Jesus. We know from the other gospels that was 30 pieces of silver. And for you, there may be something else that you value more than your relationship to Jesus. Maybe it's a relationship with some other person. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your perceived credentials spiritually. But the only way to heaven, as we often say here, is own Christ's own terms, which is empty hands and outturned pockets. The prayer of the publican, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Judas apparently never got to that point. Judas liked being in the group. He liked having a place of prominence. He was hoping, I believe, to have a, a great position in the Messiah's cabinet when he set up his earthly government for his own enrichment. But when it came to bowing his knee and his heart and his life and his soul to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, coming to him on his terms saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. He never did it. And because he never did, his heart was open and Satan entered him and he did the unimaginable. He betrayed the only perfect person that ever lived. What about you? Have you been born again? Has your heart changed? Is your attitude towards your sinfulness different than it used to be? 
I'm not asking, are you sinless? None of us are. Even when we're born again, we continue to sin. That's why Jesus had to show them the washing of the feet. That we don't need to be saved all over, but we have to have the dirt and dust of the world regularly removed from us so that we may have relationship constantly with the Lord because this world is full of temptation. I'm saying, what is your attitude towards sin? Do you hate it? Do you despise it? Are you making progress in sanctification? Or do you love and embrace it? Do you relish it? Do you value Christ supremely? That is the ultimate question of the Lord's Supper. And so next time we take it, which will be in a couple of months, we have the opportunity now to reflect. And the next time we come together, we will remember the essential elements of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Father, you often use symbols and signs and ceremonies in the Bible to cause us to remember important theological truths. You did it with the nation of Israel through the bitter herbs and through the unleavened bread and Father, through the lamb. And every time they had to come back year after year and make these sacrifices again, it was a reminder of their perpetual sinfulness. But Lord, it was also a reminder that one day there was coming a Messiah. So Father, in a similar fashion, every time we Christians get together around the Lord's table, there are elements that remind us of certain things. There's the bread that reminds us of Christ and his body, which was broken for us. As Isaiah said, by his stripes we're healed. It also reminds us that our very existence and how we're sustained is through the person and work of Jesus. We eat and are nourished by this bread of life. And Father, then when we take of the, the cup, uh, the contents are red, the, the color of blood, it reminds us of the high cost of our sin. That without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And Lord, we know and are reminded every time that our blood was insufficient because we're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But you intervened and it was your sovereign plan to redeem a people unto yourself. You ratified that covenant agreement through the shed blood of Jesus. And Father, it calls us to anticipate that time in the future where we're free of the penalty and the power of sins, but the very presence of sin, Lord. But we'll worship and gather around your throne forever and ever. Lord, also it causes us to examine our own heart to see if we're only giving lip service to the gospel. So Father, I pray for every believer here today that you would give us assurance of salvation where it's appropriate. Father, I also pray for someone here today who maybe has been in church every Sunday all their lives and maybe even taken of the Lord's Supper dozens of times, but their heart has never changed or they've never been born again. They've never submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would grant them today faith and repentance. I pray you do all these things for your own namesake and for your own glory. And through Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.